Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. I want to say a special thank you to our online donors for making this podcast possible. We are going behind the sermon this week. Adam is asking me questions about my last teaching, which is the life-changing magic of walking on water. So we are going behind the sermon. This is a question and answer session with Pastor Adam. Adam, welcome. It is always great to be here in the studio. Thank you. This uh, question and answer session is based on the teaching, the life-changing magic of walking on water, which is the miracle of Jesus walking on water. So Adam's come up with some questions uh, that he's going to ask about what went into the sermon, what got cut, and we're doing this every week. So Adam, take it away. All right. Thanks so much, first of all, for the sermon. It was, I thought it was awesome. Um, you preached on a very famous story in John chapter 6 of Jesus walking on the water. Definitely a story that really fascinated me as a kid. Um, and growing up, I heard the story a lot. So um, you, you kind of touched on it and talked a lot about how this is a miracle that calls us out of fear, right? That, that calls us to not be afraid even in fearful situations. So the first question that I have for you is, um, what is the biggest fear that hinders Christianity today? I think the biggest fear that hinders Christianity is uh, change. Mm. I think that Christians are very scared of change. And they often view change uh, with suspicion. Um, and there's this sense that Christianity or humanity's relationship with God or our connection to God was much better back then. And we read stories in the Bible, often reading stories about how God speaks directly to humankind. And we just long for those days as if God was closer to humanity back then than now. Uh, the problem with that is I think that that professes to a God who is dead. And the, the, I say that very intentionally because this idea that God is dead is really tied to the idea that God was better back then and we keep going further and further away and God has nothing new to say to us today. Um, I found that it's much more helpful to look at the Bible as a, as a source that shows how God challenged what the status quo was of the day and how God moved people forward and to recognize that beyond the book of Revelation, God has continued to push people forward in the same tradition uh, of the Bible and the stories that we read there. So I think that Christians often fear change, even though I would say that change is often the work of God. Awesome. So to kind of follow up on that, a, a lot of Christians would say probably in response to that, but doesn't the Bible say that God never changes? So if my biggest fear is change, then isn't that just doing what the Bible says or what God says? What would, what would you say to that idea? Well, that's an excellent follow-up question. Um, I would say that, yes, that's true. God never changes because God is always the same. However, human beings change, and primarily human beings change their perception of God. Mm. And so when we talk about the change that Christians are often resistant to or fearful toward, I'm talking about the change of humanity's perception of who God is. For instance, 100 years ago, uh, people were barely talking about sexual orientation and gender identity um, people and issues. And today to talk about how we see the image of God in all human beings uh, and that every human being, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity, is crafted in the image of the divine is ultimately an idea that was always true all, all along, but just recently human beings woke up to. 
Yeah. So that's what I would say is the change that Christians are often fearful of. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions of how we as Christians can let go of that fear um, of, of change? And it was a really great way you put it. I thought of how our, our perspectives of God change over time. How do, how do we kind of hold our perspectives of God now with an open hand and let that fear go? I think that when we study history, we can find some answers to that question. Because when you look at the Bible, a lot of it is perception changing. And the more we become familiar with that and start to look for it, you recognize it as a pattern within the biblical narrative. Uh, You recognize that the reason that people didn't like Jeremiah at all is because he challenged the religious institution, which was an opulent uh, and very wealthy structure, to start caring about the widow and the immigrant. And he had this idea so long ago that we still struggle with today in our own society. But uh, he was cast out and pushed aside because people were more concerned with protecting their temple than they were with where God was actually leading them. So once you start to become more comfortable with those stories, then you start to recognize how God is moving today in 2020. And I think that's when you can become more comfortable with change. Nice. Awesome. Coming back to the miracle now, you, you talked a little bit about, uh, well, last week, first of all, you talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, this week, you talked about Jesus walking on water. And then you also mentioned this part of the story that we often skip over in, in the biblical narrative. And that's that uh, after asking for another sign and refusing, many of Jesus's disciples actually leave him and, and abandon him. Um, why did I never hear this part of the story growing up, Craig, you know what, why do we skip over this? Why do we focus on the miracles a lot and not focus on, on that important part of, of the narrative? Because it's complicated and <laughs> religion, organized religion often has a hard time with nuance and complexities and the idea that Jesus would preach and it would make people angry. That is not something that I heard within the system of organized religion ever in my life. Yeah. Um, And if I did hear something like that, it was always geared toward the Catholics (laughs) and the fact that (laughs) the Jesus would make the Catholics uncomfortable. It would never make us uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's when you read the story for yourself. You start to become aware of, wait, I think I would be offended here. Mm. And so the lesson from that is to accept that and not to be filled with shame, but to say, how can I change so that that way, when something like this presents itself to me, I can ultimately uh, be open to that change and see where God is leading in the present day. Yeah. To kind of go along with that, you talked a lot about some of the surrounding passages and some of the surrounding miracles along with Jesus walking on water. Um, you could have saved those for an, another sermon, but you decided it was it was important for to make those connections in this sermon. Why did you think those connections of Jesus um, offending people were important, especially when we're talking about living without fear and fearful situ- situations? So Richard Rohr teaches about how whenever Jesus crosses a body of water or the disciples cross a body of water, it's usually a metaphor for some new consciousness being awoken within the disciples. Oh, wow. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I had to cut Super it for cool. time. And probably because I just didn't want to give Richard Rohr more credit because I give him <laughs> way too much anyways. <laughs> you have a limit. So I, I, yeah, right. I can only <laughs> mention him once a month in a sermon. Uh, but I really believe that's true. And this is, so the question is, what's being crossed over here? What mm. what before the Sea of Galilee is different than what's after? And it's very clear that the, the multitude wants to crown him as king. Yep. And then afterwards, 
the multitude has no interest in crowning him king and eventually leaves. And you look at the rest of the story and you recognize that, oh my goodness, all of a sudden Jesus is not popular, but Jesus is someone who is fighting for justice, equality, a better awareness of God. And it's really rubbing people the wrong way. Now, there are people that like him, um, but it's much more divisive after chapter six than it is before. Yeah. I remember that this for me was one of the the great challenges of my faith was realizing how disruptive and uh, offensive Jesus could be. Um, so when, when you say that in the story and you, and you point it out that way, it just it reminded me of that of that time in my life. Was that ever something that was uh, kind of came to you or came alive in your life or you noticed in a specific way? Like at a certain point, or was it kind of over time you, you started to notice it more? Or was there one specific instance? I think it changed a lot when I started reading the Bible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <supposed> right? To, <laughs> as opposed to just telling, allowing people to tell me what was in it. Yeah. Uh, one specific moment that sticks out, I don't know if this was the moment or as much as it was a moment that I can tell you for sure stuck out, was in Mark's gospel when Jesus clears the temple. Uh, I was always told that Jesus cleared the temple because he was so upset at people making money and selling things in the temple. Mm -hmm. But when you read Mark's gospel, he doesn't say anything about the economy of it. He says this was supposed to be a house for all nations. Mm -hmm. Now that's a really strange thing to say, and I don't really know what to do with it until you start to look at the architecture of the temple and you recognize that it is one of the most segregated architectural layouts that you could possibly imagine. There's a yeah. court of the Gentiles that's the outer court. Then the next innermost court is the court of the women that was only for Jewish women. Then the next innermost court is the court of the men. And then the, the innermost court is the uh, court of the Jewish priests. That's so impressive that you can like, you know, all of that. Just I, like, I like architecture. <laughs> yeah, I and then the whole most holy place is for the highest ranking official, which is the high priest. Yeah. Right. And so um, when Jesus comes in and says this was supposed to be a temple for all nations, he's actually pointing to that barrier, that that wall that's there that separates the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women and uh, is pointing to that as a problem to say that this segregation is offensive to God. Yeah. Let's come back to the, the main part of this miracle that you talked about a bit and put a lot of emphasis on Jesus walking on water, coming to the boat and saying, it is I do not be afraid. Um, what was kind of the, the power in that statement for you as you prepared that sermon that, that you were like, I need to keep coming back to this? Well, the storm is definitely one of the most common metaphors for suffering in human, in the human experience, right? That's, that's really funny. I never thought about that before. We're, we're very uh, oftentimes hesitant against uh, metaphors when it comes to the miracles of Jesus, except for when we talk about storms and yes. all of a sudden it becomes a, a very yeah. metaphor we're very comfortable with. Well, and I mean, anytime somebody says I've been in a stormy season, everyone yeah. knows what you're talking about, regardless of your religious practice or belief. So, there's this storm and you think about the theology of what people often think about storms. And while this is often addressed in the Bible, people really, especially Christians in America today, really hold to the fact that God is the one that sends the storms mm. and the storms exist to test our faith, similar to the book of Job. But this story does not attribute that Jesus sent the storms. This is a story about God being with us in the storms. And when God is with us in the storms, the question that we have to ask is, well, what do we expect God to say? And mm -hmm. the truth is very few Christians I know would 
trust or believe that God would actually say what Jesus said in John chapter 6. I think they would say much closer to that other statement that I said, which is repent and I shall deliver you from the storm. Yeah. And for that reason, anytime it surprises me, I try to share that in a sermon because I have this idea that if something surprises me or is different than what I feel like most Christians would expect Jesus to do, it's worth mentioning and talking about and illustrating in a sermon. Nice. That's a really great window into into your thought process, which is always fascinating, especially as a fellow pastor, which is very fascinating to me. Um, kind of more of a personal question, but you, again, we talked a lot about living without fear. Um, when was a time as a pastor where you made a decision that was out of something you were afraid of? That I was, the decision was made because of fear? Yes. Hmm. Um, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, the one that comes to mind right away is that there was a time when we had, um, you know, I'm just going to tell who it was because actually your wife was part of this. Oh, I think I know we, this story. <laughs> uh, there was a time where we had four young women come and sing worship at a church that I was at. And uh, one of them was your wife, Ariana. And the senior pastor felt it was necessary to pull them aside and tell them that their dresses were too short, like 20 minutes before they were about to sing. And it was it's one of those moments you look back and you're like, what was I doing with my life? Yeah. Uh, and obviously it was very hard to hear. It was very difficult to have the conversation. It was very difficult for people that heard it. It was, it was just, you know, classic patriarchy running the church, um, talking about how these women were being a distraction, even though we we're leading for, for God. And I remember I didn't really condemn it right at first because I was brand new at that church and I'd kind of been run out of the previous church before that. And I, I, I didn't really condemn it or take a strong stand because I was afraid. Mm-hmm. And so that's one that I would say I, I definitely acted on account of fear. And I would hope that I've learned to act better in the future situations, but you don't know until you're in those situations. Yeah. So that was a time... Uh, that I feel like fear dictated my my decision making as a pastor. As I said, I, I sort of condemned it, but I didn't nearly stand up enough to, you know, fight the patriarchy in the system in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. It's funny that that was that was the story, but um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I know that's there's probably so many of those as pastors that we look back and are just like, oh man, that was that was such a decision driven by fear and. Uh, sorry, a little tangent here, but that one thing that I appreciate about so much about paradox is that like w- this is not a place where fear is the driving force behind the decisions that we make, whether it comes to preaching or uh, how we're how we're choosing to grow as a church and, and that kind of thing in the future. So that's always always something that I really value about about this place. Well, and that's that's a big part though, where we I want people to know that we struggle with that because there's always a temptation to do what's popular. Yes. And to say something that makes people feel good about their faith, like that's something that we don't do at Paradox. We don't strive to do that, but there's always that temptation. Yep. And we try our best to say what needs to be said rather than what people want to hear, which is a very, very big difference. And so that that's something that's, it's always in the back of my mind, but we try our best not to let it dictate what we do, even though every now and then it breaks through. Yeah. That transitions perfectly into what I wanted to ask you next um, because uh, you talked about Ida B. Wells in your sermon and uh, you shared a very large part of her story. Um, why did you think that was the the perfect fit for what we were talking about on Saturday with, with living 
without fear and fearful situations. Ida B. Wells is often described as fearless. And so when you read her stories or you read people talking about her, they'll use the word fearless. And immediately it connects me to those words of Jesus walking on the water saying, it is I, do not be afraid. So the fact that someone describes her as fearless when she had every reason to be fearful is exactly what this story is about. And so I would say that any person in history that's described by fearless, especially those who are on the, the, um, the powerless side of the power structures, those are the heroes that this story is about. And it's led by Jesus and this idea that you are a true hero if you are standing up for what is right and you are standing up without fear. So that's what I think Ida Bell, that's who I think Ida B. Wells is. It was obvious that you, you know, you were very passionate about her story and, and sharing that on Saturday. Um, so I'm not asking you to put one part of her story or the other, but was there a specific part of her story that especially resonated with you um, as you were preparing the sermon? So I've seen African-Americans today stand up for what they believe in and try to point out uncomfortable truths in America today and seeing what happens to them, like Colin Kaepernick. And I haven't think of Colin Kaepernick as someone who stood up uh, without fear for what is right, you know, raising awareness and calling attention to the fact that uh, police are murdering unarmed black men. He's not popular at all. And it's 2016 that he did his protest, I think. I'm not sure. 2016, 2017, somewhere in there. We're talking about 1892 in Memphis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You did say that a couple of times. And a, yeah. bl- a black woman is writing about lynchings mm. in Memphis. She, she published her essay in New York City, and I understand that, but her first article was published in Memphis, and that's what led them to burn or uh, to set fire to her printing press. I don't think I'd have the courage to do that. Um, and I'll tell you, like when she when she calls out white men who are silent on this are accomplices in these lynchings, that one really stings to me because I s- assume that's who I would be if mm-hmm. I was living in Memphis during that wow. time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, to say that I am just as guilty as the people who are actually doing this. Like, if I don't pay attention to that, then I've missed or dishonored her work, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So the the fact that she's standing up and saying things that I think are really really cutting edge and very honest all that time ago is really inspiring to me. You kept coming back to this question, what would you do when talking about Ida B. Wells' story? And you, you alluded to it just now. Um, why did you think that was a question that you, we all should consider um, during the sermon? Why was that an important question to ask? Because I have no doubt that the majority of the people of Paradox would not have done what Ida Wells did. Mm. Now, yeah, I, c- I can say that's true for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the people of Paradox, and I don't want to. I don't want to bash on them, and I don't want to say I'm disappointed in them. I count myself as the people exactly. of Paradox, yeah. and the only reason I can say I have, I, I, I don't, I think they would wouldn't have done what Ida Wells uh, had the courage to do is because I think I would have been in that same boat. So. For us to recognize that history is made up of people who take chances, take risks, who are have consequences for their decisions rather than just facts in a book, I think is really important. And that's what we try to do, not just with history here at Paradox, but also with the biblical stories. So we try our best to bring these people to life 
And these are people trying to make decisions in like real time yeah. with real consequences. And we often forget that in history. So my goal with that question was to try to make her more human um, and to see how people would feel and react to the humanity of her more than anything else. Nice. You told three pretty horrific stories of racism um, throughout the sermon of, of specifically of uh, people being racist towards African Americans. And um, I just wanted to ask what, why were these stories so important to tell in 2020? Are you just trying to be negative about America's history? Are you just trying to make white people feel bad? I know those are some of the critiques that you might hear from that, but in your mind, what, what is the reason that it's so important to share stories like that, especially such graphic stories um, in sermons at Paradox? So the liturgists have published a podcast called Black History is American History, where they've been highlighting um, every day uh, a figure from black history and talking about why they're important to black history in America. They recently posted one on Emmett Till, and it was really, really good. And what they were doing is they were drawing a line to show how what happened to Emmett Till was not a first offense of the law or justice within America's history, but it was a continuation of all that America has been doing up until Emmett Till and then even after Emmett Till. And they were the ones that drew a direct line between Emmett Till and Trayvon Martin. Yeah. When I heard that podcast, I think it was just last week, I realized that what happens with Ida Wells is we often will say in a group setting like Paradox, isn't Ida Wells great? She should be celebrated and it's Black History Month, so we're going to celebrate her today. But I really believe that's dishonoring Ida Wells because the fact is I believe that if Ida Wells was alive in 1955 or if she was alive with us today, she would be writing voraciously in defense of Emmett Till and Trayvon Martin. And so it's to show that we haven't moved past this and that racism is still with us today. And racism is not a problem of the past, but it's something that we have to deal with as Americans today is why I wanted to draw the connection between those three stories. Yeah. If it's okay, I'm going to kind of do a quick follow-up question on that. Um, you know, you have every week we, we have the opportunity to, to preach at Paradox. Why, why not just go with something safe and comfortable? You know, why... Why talk about something so, so so horrific? Why make people feel uncomfortable? What's what's the what do you hope uh, the the goal is with with stories, moving powerful stories like that? I know I think I told you this a couple of times, but my entire row was was in tears uh, as you were talking about this story. It was just especially to be in the room. It was so powerful. But maybe to somebody who wasn't in the room or, or kind of looks on this from the outside and says like, why why not just do something safe or comfortable or, or tell everybody that God's grace is good all the time or something like that. I mean, because I could die in a car crash tomorrow. Hmm. <laughs> I don't have, I don't have next week guaranteed. So I better give everything I have to this sermon this week. And one of the guiding principles for me every time I stand up to speak is if I died tomorrow, would I be comfortable with this sermon? Hmm. And if not, then why am I preaching it? Um, and some may say that's morbid. I, I found it to be inspiring personally. Um, you know, I still make long range plans. I still have a retirement plan. <laughs> yeah, <right? yeah. laughs> like I don't, I don't live completely by that mantra, but as far as creatively and from a preaching perspective, I absolutely ask myself every week, if I died tomorrow, is this the sermon I would want to give this weekend? Yeah. 
And um, if the answer is no, then I try to change it. I did not know that. That's really, that is, I do find that inspiring. Um, towards the end of the sermon, you started uh, giving us some things to consider and challenging us um, in the congregation. You talked about having the courage to stand up for what is right, even in fearful situations. Um, how might we go about defining what is right in quotations? Like what are we, where, how or what or who or where do we look to find what is right? And I'll, I'll kind of ask a follow-up question about this in just a second of why I'm asking it, but that, that's the first part. Whatever brings about greater humanity, empathy, and love is always right, mm. according to Jesus Christ. And where, where would you say, like, if somebody was like, well, I, I don't believe that, like, I don't <laughs> believe that's, that's all Jesus was about. Like, where do you get that from? I would get, I mean, this is why I believe in, I believe in Christianity and I believe specifically in the message and the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is asked, this is in Matthew's gospel, um, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, most people skip the next part, which I would say is just as important as the two commandments, which is Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two. So Jesus is basically saying, I can save you a lot of time. You don't really need to study the Bible because it's going to give you two commandments, and there's these commandments. And to turn those commandments into just practical application, I would say, is to have a greater understanding of humanity, love, and empathy, uh, more so today than we did yesterday, is to follow both of those commandments. Hmm. So to kind of continue this train of thought, and the answer might be similar, and that's totally okay, but I want you to imagine for a second uh, that somebody heard your sermon on Saturday with no knowledge of paradox, and they heard you say, like, we have to stand up for what is right, even in fearful situations, and, and this person who doesn't really know paradox but just heard your sermon uh, used your message to justify taking a stand against the evils, and I'm using evils in quotations, of same-sex marriage without fear. What what would you say to that person? How would you kind of frame what you said and say, no, that's that's not the interpretation of what I'm saying when I'm saying living without fear? So that's always a possibility, and at some point you have to surrender the outcomes of what you're saying, right? Mm. Like I understand that that person would perceive that as right, but at the same time, I can't let that dictate everything that I do is just imagining a worst case scenario. Not only that, but when you preach a sermon, you're never going to be able to cover all the bases, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, we talked about doing what's right in terms of uh, racial inequality in America, yeah. right? Yeah. It would be very easy for me to talk to that person about saying, well, do you really believe that um, to be pro-racial equality, you have to be anti-LGBT? And I know there are people that would say you can do that and there's not a problem with that. But I would draw a clear connection between those. And if I was preaching during Pride Month, I would, much, I would tell this same story with this same passage of scripture. But I would talk about the discrimination that our queer brothers and sisters and non-binary mm. uh, persons have felt throughout their lives. Because you always try to apply it to a specific and almost always someone can twist that and you have to be okay with it on some level when you preach. Otherwise you will never stand up to preach at all. Yeah. I think that, yeah, that's a great insight, especially, especially uh, as someone sitting in the congregation on Saturday. Um, I know that was something I was a little bit worried about with, with my sermon a couple of weeks ago when I talked about um, challenging the systems for justice is the way of God. 
I was like, well, some maybe people maybe take this the wrong way. Um, so that, that's a great perspective um, to, to hold as well. Um, coming back a little bit to the the actual miracle in the, in the story in John chapter six, um, I like asking this one. I'll probably ask it most times. But did you did you learn anything new about the miracle that you didn't know before as you were researching and studying? Yeah, the boat transports immediately to the shore. <laughs> yeah. I, had, I had no idea. So I got that was super weird to me. Yeah. I, I think that, and I forgot to mention this on Saturday. I mentioned it in the podcast, though, is that I think that's a symbol for once you have a desire to live without fear, that's when you get to where faith is trying to take you. Mm. Um, that's the symbolism I think John intended for that story to have. Uh, but yeah, for it to be immediately transported, never, ever have heard, I heard that in my life. Yeah. Um, so that was an interesting thing to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how can we as Christians live without fear in fearful situations today? Well, I'll tell you that once you get fired from a job, it's a lot less scary to get fired the next time because <laughs> you realize you can make it after that. I've learned that from personal experience. Uh, I say that. Because if you're convinced that what you're doing is right and what God is, you start to surrender those outcomes that are the fearful outcomes of things. So, you know, for instance, I'll talk about when, when I was preaching about um, how God creates uh, queer people in the image of God as well. Um, it's very easy to ask yourself the question like, wow, I might get fired for this. But then you ask the follow-up question, which is, is this worth getting fired over? Mm. And if the answer yeah. is yes, then keep saying it. <laughs> and if the answer is no, then stop. <laughs> right? Like if you don't, if you don't believe in what you're doing, whatever it is, I mean, this, we're talking about any line of work, not just ministry here. Right. Uh, if you don't believe in what you're doing and you don't believe that what you're doing is, is worth getting fired over, then you probably should stop that behavior and do the things that your employer wants you to do. Um, but if you start to get the sense that this is worth getting fired for, I would tell you that in my personal experience, it's worth pursuing that. And sometimes it's really heartbreaking what's at the end of that road because you do come face to face with racism and sexism and homophobia and hatred. But I would say that I've personally found that it's worth it to keep going. So yeah, if, if you're afraid of things and it, whether it's losing a relationship or losing a job, I would say is this worth losing this over? And if the answer is yes, I would really encourage you to keep going. Yeah. That reminds me a lot of uh, Rob Bell speaking on um, everything is spiritual part two. And he was just going through all this crap that he got for, for writing love wins and how just now if somebody is to call him a heretic, he's like, that's, that's nothing, you know, like I've been through, every, I've been through everything that this, this road had to offer. And now, living without fear is so, so much easier. And I thought it was genius too, that uh, Rob Bell released a documentary about himself called The Heretic, because now every time you type in Rob Bell Heretic into yeah, Google, it comes up, up with it. It's some of the best marketing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's genius. Well, and I, I understand that. And I would just say, once you've gone through it, you know, you know that you can make it through it the next time. Yeah. And so, yeah, if it's worth losing something over, then keep going. But if it's not, then stop. Yeah, I think that relates to the stories that, especially Vita B. Wells, that, that you told as well. Um, just a couple, a couple more questions. Uh, what are some things that you hope uh, to leave 
everybody who listens to your sermon on Saturday live stream or the podcast, whether what are the main things that you hope that they walk away understanding? The number one thing is you hear the words of Jesus in the storm, which is Jesus or God or um, a higher power, whatever you want to re- reference this being uh, as, is there to calm your fears, uh, is there to help you live without fear. When we live with fear, we really reduce ourselves to one of the lowest levels of our existence. And I believe that God calls us into a higher level to live beyond the the fear that we feel. Um, That being said, I want everyone to know that's listening. I do struggle with fear personally. I I do have this temptation that shows up quite a bit and I try my best to uh, transcend it. And some weeks I'm better than others and some weeks I'm not. Um, But that's the thing I would want people to hear more than anything else is the words of Jesus in the storm. If I could pick a second thing, the second thing is that racism is real and alive today. And I hope that you do not look back at Trayvon Martin's story and say, well, we've moved past that now. Um, I hope that you recognize that it's a continuation of lynch mobs and white men taking the law into their own hands and acting as jury and executioner and recognizing that America is still in the storm of white supremacy. And we can only do something about it once we recognize that we're still in the storm and not believe the falsehood that the storm is in our past and we're going forward. Wow. Awesome. Um, and last question, is there just anything else that you want to add about the sermon as a whole? Um, anything uh, that I missed asking you questions about that you wanted to respond to or add or talk about? I just hope that people take these stories and, and listen to them and think critically about them. And then they study the Bible on their own, or they think about what they personally believe and come to their own conclusions. My goal is not for you to come to the conclusions I've come to. Uh, It's to help you see what's inspired these stories and ask for yourself what these stories are saying to you about your life. Um, I hope that everybody feels like our sermons at Paradox, whether I'm preaching or Adam's preaching or Mandy's preaching, is that it invites you to look at who you are and asks you to change in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I hope that it helps you become a person who is more loving and kind and patient and caring for others. So that's ultimately what our goals here at Paradox when we preach. And so I hope that this sermon has done that on some level. Yeah, yeah. I know it definitely, uh, definitely did it for me and, my, me and my family were talking about it quite a bit after. So again, thank you so much for, for the sermon and for answering all of the questions and uh, really appreciate getting a window into what's going on in your mind as you as you prepare this sermon is really fascinating and really helpful and, uh, and inspiring. So thank you. Thank you, Adam. And to all that you're listening, may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.